Um, Genesis 6, uh, 1 to 8. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. David's going to come up and give us the word. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open, you're going to be needing that throughout this. But before I start... I want to remind us of this verse in 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be equipped for every good work. If you've joined us for the first time today, welcome. My name is David, and we are so glad that you are here. And we're currently in the middle of a series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And I'm going to say it outright. This passage is downright weird, a little bit confusing, and it feels irrelevant to us today. Yet this passage in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reminds us that this strange, obscure passage is useful for us. It's God-breathed. It's helpful for us to be equipped for every good work, being trained in righteousness. And our commitment as Bible-believing Christians is not to skip passages like Genesis 6, 1 to 8, but to wrestle with them. Not to put them in the too hard or too confusing basket, but to seriously consider what it means for us being equipped for every good work. And so as we look and explore Genesis 6, 1 to 8, we're going to do it in three parts. Part one, what we want. Part two, what we need. And part three, God is faithful. But before we start, the most helpful thing we can do when we wrestle with a passage like this is to pray asking God to reveal what this passage means to us. So please pray with me. Father, reveal to us what you have to say to us in this passage by your Spirit. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be good and pleasing in your sight. Amen. Part one, what we want. Do you ever see something that is really pleasing to your eye and you just want it? It might be you're in a bookstore, you're browsing, you see a good-looking cover... It might be at Myers or DJ's, some clothes you like, Domain or realestate.com, the Apple or Samsung store. Do you ever just see something that you want, that you fall in love with, that you just want to have it? You convince yourself that by having this object or this thing, this beautiful, pleasing thing, that'll be good for you. It'll make your life better, even though you probably don't even need it. And this is kind of what's happening in our passage today. If we look at verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were pleasing to the eye. They were beautiful. They are good-looking, and so they take them for themselves. They see and they take. 
They want these women for themselves, and so they take them without asking for their permission, care, or consideration of what the woman herself wants. But before I go any further, the sons of God keep coming up again and again in this passage, so it would be helpful for us to understand who the sons of God are. And there are four main interpretations throughout ages and today that of who the sons of God could be. They're on the screen there. So one of them is that the sons of God are angels who have fallen and have married humans, or the daughters of humans. Another is that the sons of God are men from the line of Seth who have married with the line of Cain. Another is that the sons of God are princes and rulers. And fourth, the sons of God are humans possessed by demons who are forced to marry humans. So there's four main interpretations from scholars and theologians about who the sons of God could be. But I'm not going to tell you what I think it is, partly because I'm still a little bit undecided, but also I don't think that's the point of this story. This is not given to us to explore who or what the sons of God are, but to focus on why they are taking and seeing. The sons of God, whoever they are, see and take the daughters of humans. And this calls us back to Genesis 3, 6, which says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It sounds familiar to our passage today. If we look on the screen, we can see the bit of comparison. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. It was pleasing, desirable. So she took some. And in the same way that Eve saw that the fruit looked good, it was pleasing to the eye, it was desirable, and so she took it, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful. And so they married any of them they chose. They saw and they took. But why did they see and take? Well, as P.P. told us in verse 5 of Genesis 6, God sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all of the time. Every inclination, every purpose, every intent of humanity was only evil, only sinful, all the time. And like Pippi showed us in her spotlight, the directory of sin so far in Genesis is that it started with just two people, Adam and Eve. But that spread to Adam and Eve's family with Cain and Abel. And now that we see sin is not just one or two people or a single family, but it's the entire creation. It's everyone. It's all of humanity. It's all of society. Sin is part of all of society and every thought, every inclination, all the time. I really like making bread. I've eaten homemade bread as long as I can remember, and I think it tastes better than stormwater bread. It actually also works out a bit cheaper. And if you've made bread before, that's not your fancy sourdough or damper or things like that, but just your basic loaf at home, you know an essential ingredient is yeast. In the recipe I used, I calculated that yeast makes up just over 1% of the entire mixture, but without the yeast, the bread would be completely different. It would taste different, it would look different, it would feel different. Such a small amount of yeast affects the whole loaf. It changes the entire mixture. And in the same way, sin started as such a small part of the world, but has grown and affected all of creation. It has changed the whole earth. Humanity now sees and takes whatever they want because every thought, every purpose, every inclination is evil all the time. And I think this is still true for us today. We see something that is pleasing to the eye, something that we want, 
something that we think might make our lives better, and so we take it. We take something that is a want, and we take it as a need. We need to have this. It might be the latest bit of technology that we think will make our lives easier, help us be more connected. It might be that we see a house or a job that we think might improve our social standing. It might be a name brand of food at the shops that we think will improve our meal. Whatever it might be, often we see things that are attractive and we take it for ourselves out of a sinful desire to have more, to provide for ourselves, to be the rulers of our own life. When we see and take these things for ourselves, to make ourselves better, or to give us more power or more riches or more, a better quality of life, I think we do it because we are scared that God might not provide for us. Scared that God isn't actually good. That he doesn't give us not only what we need, but that he doesn't give us more than we need. That God isn't powerful enough to provide for every physical, emotional, and spiritual need that we have. We're scared about that. And so we go our own way, not God's way. And this is what sin is. Going our own way, not God's. And this brings us to part two. What we need. What we need. Sometimes, though, what we need is actually the same as what we want. Like when we're thirsty, what we want is a glass of water. And that's also what we need. But when it comes to this passage, I think that what these people needed is not relationships with other humans, but it's a relationship with God. But we saw in Genesis 3 that when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a breakdown of relationship between Adam and Eve. But there was also a relationship breakdown between both Adam and Eve and God. And we saw that because of sin, there was a breakdown of relationship between the brothers, Cain and Abel, leading to one murder the other. And now we see a relationship breakdown on a societal level, with the sons of God taking what they want. They aren't asking permission. They're not seeking what is best for the other. They just see what is good and they take it. They are trying to provide for themselves and not trusting that God will provide for their every need. Our ability to relate to others and God has broken down. And I think we see this particularly in verse 3 where God says that his spirit will no longer remain in humanity. That his spirit will no longer contend with humanity forever. He will no longer contend with them going their own way and no longer contend with their sinful inclination. I can't help but think of Romans 1 here, which talks of how God gives humanity over to their sinful desires because even though humanity knew God, they didn't want anything to do with him. And it's not even like God isn't present. He's not around with these people. We saw this last week with Enoch. Enoch walked with the Lord. But the most of the people, the general society, don't want to acknowledge God. They refuse to acknowledge him as creator. They refuse to worship him, follow him, and listen to him. They refuse to let God fulfill their needs to be known. And so they try and do it for themselves. And this is evil. This is sinful because it's replacing God, who created the heavens and the earth, who is deserving of praise with themselves, with ourselves. It's saying to the creator of everything that we know better that how we want to live our life is better than how to live his way. And so God gives them over to their evil desires. And because of this, they are deserving of death. So God says that he will wipe out humanity from the face of the earth in Genesis 6-7. But and yet, as Pippi reminded us, 
God has promised, and we are promised by the Bible at this point, the serpent-crushing offspring of Eve in Genesis 3.15. And we know this hasn't happened yet, otherwise the Bible would have told us. And so we are left wondering if God will let the serpent-crushing offspring of Eve come, or he'll just wipe out humanity and be done with it. And it's not even like we don't want God to deal with the injustice, with the evilness. We do. We want him to deal with evil. In our passage today, every human is corrupt. They're abusive. We want God to deal with them. But at the same time, we want him to show mercy because we can't believe that not everyone is evil, is completely bad. Surely some are deserving of mercy. We struggle with the idea that God would just simply wipe out all of humanity from the face of the earth. And not only humanity, but the creatures of the air the creatures of the ground, those who crawl. And this is the tension we find time and time again in the Old Testament. How does a just God remain merciful to creation, a humanity that is sinful and wants nothing to do with him? It's a question that I find myself asking all the time. It's a question that I find many people in today's society asking as well. If a God is just, why does he allow evil things to keep happening? If all of humanity is sinful and has fallen short of the glory of God, in reminds us in Romans 3, 23, why in God's mercy does he allow humanity to continue to exist? And this brings us to part three. God is faithful. God is faithful. One of the most striking parts of this passage is that God regrets what he's made. It's what it tells us in Genesis 6, 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. God regrets what he has made. This is really striking, I think, to us because it feels like a weird emotion for God to experience. How can God, who knows everything that's going to happen, regret something that he's done? I think about it in the same kind of way I think about my marriage sometimes. I've been married to Pip for just over a year now, and sometimes I feel sad about being married. Sometimes it's really hard. And often it's when we've just fought, or I'm feeling low, or other things are going on in, in my life. Um, but even though sometimes I'm sad about married, I'm troubled by it, that sadness, that troubledness doesn't diminish the joy I find in being married. It doesn't diminish it being worth being married to her. And it doesn't diminish the promises that I'm going to keep and being faithful to, to love and cherish her. The sadness doesn't diminish the worth of it. I think it's the same with God. He knew what was going to happen. He knew his heart was going to be deeply troubled in the future. Yet in all of this regret, in all of this sadness, God has for what he has created and his judgment to wipe out all of humanity from the face of the earth, God still thinks it's worth having created humanity that it's still worth being faithful to humanity and preserving them. And why? Well, it's because he's made a promise to Eve, and God doesn't break his promises. God thinks it's worth being faithful to his promise to provide an offspring to Eve to crush the serpent's head, and so he chose Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's what our reading today says, but that word favor in the Hebrew can also mean grace. And I think that captures it really well, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace for me gives this connotation of it was nothing that Noah did or said that meant God had to choose him, but it's because God is merciful 
and he is faithful to his promise. And yes, Genesis 6-9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man who walked with God, but we know that sin is still part of his life from Genesis 9. Sin goes with him and his family on the ark. Noah, like us, is still affected by sin. But God shows grace to Noah by choosing him from the whole world to preserve. God judges the rest of humanity, but is merciful to Noah and his family. And yet again, we see the tension between God's justice and his mercy. We sit here wondering about Noah, and indeed for our own world, how if God is truly just, he can allow sinners to continue to exist, and even go so far as to pardon and bless them. Like, you can either be completely just or completely merciful, but you can't be completely both. How is that fair? How is that fair for the evil that happens? And if you're anything like me, you struggle to understand how God can be both. Like, I can understand how God can be completely just. I can understand how God can be completely merciful. But I struggle to understand how God can be completely just and merciful at the same time. And even though I think we'll never truly understand it in this lifetime, we can start to understand it by looking at Jesus. And so we are reminded time and time again throughout the Bible that all of humanity is sinful. But look with me at Romans 3. This is 3.22 to 24. It says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is no one righteous, not Jew, not Gentile, not Australian, not those from the inner west or from the north shore. It doesn't matter your race or your gender, ability, religion or creed. There is no one who is good. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel, as Romans 3.24 reminds us, is that all, all can be justified freely by God's grace. All can be justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you believe through faith, that Jesus is God's son, that he paid the punishment that we deserve for being sinful, then you are justified by Jesus. That is declared just, right. Jesus died so we could have life. And we see the justice and mercy of God come together in Jesus' death and resurrection. See, justice is enacted in that Jesus, as a representative of humanity, willingly pays the price of judgment of the unrighteous, ungodly, sinful humanity. Jesus pays the cost of sin, which is death. But at the same time, we see the mercy of God, that he does this through his own son, Jesus, so that we don't have to. God is merciful, and God is just, and we see that clearly together in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So often... We, like the sons of God and humanity in Noah's time, we see something that is pleasing to the eye, something that we might want, that we want to take because we're afraid that God isn't enough, that he won't provide for our needs, that he isn't good, that he isn't faithful to his promises. It might lead us away from God. But what we need to do is look at Jesus, fix our eyes on him, the just justify who showed us mercy by dying for our sins so we didn't have to. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see a God who provides for our needs, who is really good, who is faithful to his promises, 
who shows us grace, not because of what we have done, but because God is faithful to his promise and he is faithful to those whose trust is in Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good and merciful and you provide for all our needs. When we see things that are desirable and we want to take it, even though it leads us away from you, help us by your spirit to say no. When we're afraid you won't provide, help us call out to you. Help us in all things to fix our eyes on Jesus, where we see your complete justice and mercy come together. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Glenn's going to come and pray for us now. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,